0: Hey guys, it's future Ellie here. I'm just popping myself in before we get started with today's episode to let you know that we had quite a lot of technical issues when recording this episode. There's a lot of feedback and it often sounds like we're all interrupting each other. It's not that we're super rude, we promise. It's just because the internet connection was a bit rubbish and we're all recording from different parts of the UK. So I've cut out the bits that were just too difficult to listen to, so it's okay, but there's a bit of tricky listening here and there. Thank you so much for putting up with us as we all get used to this. And we hope you still enjoy the show. Bye!
1: Hello and welcome to Down with the Patriarchy. I'm Ben Richards. And
0: I'm Elia J.O. He's as white and male as they come.
1: And she, well, she isn't. But together... We're hoping to explore those marginalised composers we don't know so well.
0: That's right. So.
1: So. so. Oh yeah. Week
0: six. Uh, week six.
1: <laughs> wow! I can't believe it's week six. I'm astonished. I Can, week six. can get you hear it in my past. voice?
0: Six weeks of it, that's an entire half term we've been doing this, Ben.
1: To be fair, this is the only thing I've done in the last six weeks that's vaguely productive, so that's quite nice, actually.
0: How's that, like, 20 grand masters paying off them?
1: Well, I'm at home, <laughs> and, you know, and this, and, um, and no, go Royal Holloway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but today we're actually talking to somebody who actually takes their work seriously, which is nice.
0: We are. She's done more research into this podcast than I think we have in the entire six weeks that we've been doing it and she is my darling cousin she's an Oxford graduate and master's holder in musicology from Oxford University she is a fantastic singer herself and has sung the works of the composer that we are going to be doing today and her dissertation was on the composer who we're going to be doing today so ladies and gentlemen welcome Franny Miller. Woo! Gosh, that, that's the grandest introduction wow. I've ever had.
1: <laughs> um, I want an introduction.
0: Also, listeners, I'm actually just going to put a caveat in. Franny and I sound really alike. So if it gets confusing, just forget who's talking and just absorb the knowledge and you can pretend that I'm the <laughs> clever one. That's how I it. Okay, cool. So Franny, do you want to tell us who... We'll, we'll give you the privilege of telling us who we're actually talking about today. Oh, how exciting! So today we are talking
2: about Madeline Dring, who is a British female composer from the 20th century. So, shall I give us a bit of overview of her life and that sort of stuff? Go for it. So, okay. So, Madeline Dring was born on the 7th of September, 1923. She was the second of two children to middle-class parents, Cecil and Winifred. Her father, Cecil, was an architect and a surveyor and was himself an amateur musician. He played the cello and he loved to sit and improvise at the piano, which was very popular with his children. Oh. Cute. Um, <laughs> Madeline's mum, Winifred, she was a mezzo-soprano. She was of Scottish descent. And her brother was also called Cecil, who was five years older. He also played instruments. So it seems like music making was very central to
0: the Dring family household. It sounds like our Christmases, is
2: Literally, I was going to say, that. <laughs> <laughs> the aunt, They used to sit around on Sunday afternoons and have family jamming sessions and make music together. <laughs> so their family homes in Streatham in London, and Madeline began learning the violin and the piano during her early years, and soon realised. Drum roll that she had perfect pitch. Oh my god. Oh god. No. Oh Your face.
1: Oh my god, this is the second week of perfect pitch. We I know. have a segment to get I out I
0: didn't want to say it just because of that, but uh, no, you, you absolutely have to. I mean, she can't do it herself, so you've just got to give her the opportunity to say it vicariously through you, you know? Of course, of course.
2: <laughs> so, so Madeline is described from a young age as having this trademark white blonde hair which she kept long for her whole life, and a very pale overall appearance. She was only five foot two, and she's described as having a really hollow back and quite an unusual face. I don't know about this, because I've always thought she looks very beautiful. I think she looks very glamorous, I think. Yeah, Um,
1: really glamorous.
2: But she's described as quite unusual looking and having these long spidery fingers, which wow. I think helped her out at the piano. I mean, that's some description. It explains because <laughs> all of her piano music has these ridiculous stretches in, which I think, how can anybody reach those intervals? But clearly she had these spider fingers. Does that <laughs> helped. <laughs>
1: spider fingers.
2: And she's described as having quite regular bouts of childhood illness, so anemia and influenza and scarlet fever, and going through quite a lot of illnesses, which I think continued for her whole life, really. Oh, God. Another tortured musician
0: we've got. Exactly. Is is there
1: there any composer we're going to look at that doesn't have some kind of chronic illness or something? Because I feel like it's a requirement almost to be a successful composer. You have to have an internal pain. Something
2: wrong. Yeah. Yeah,
1: there you want to be something wrong? You've got to wire loose somewhere, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, no, anyway. no,
2: no, so when. Things started really taking off for her. Well, on her 10th birthday, she got a violin scholarship to the Junior Royal College of Music. Um, she attended the Saturday morning junior scheme. Yeah. And she entered the school on her 10th birthday in 1933. Oh, that's very cute. Yeah. When she went there, she soon added piano and composition to her violin studies. So she attended on weekends while still attending St. Andrew's School in Streatham during the week. One of my favourite things I found from researching her is she kept a diary during her childhood, which reveals quite a lot. And there are excerpts from it published in one of the main books on her, which is by Roe Hancock Child, which is called "Madeline During Her Life, Her Music." If anyone wants to check it out, yeah, well, look um, at that in the
0: Instagram, yeah.
2: So she, she snubbed her fellow classmates a lot in this diary, saying they are horribly contented and unambitious um, and <laughs> none of them seem musical at all about her week time classmates so it seems she found the rcm to be a real sanctuary on the weekend where she could interact with people more of her to her canva, yeah yeah <laughs> so she kept going there on the weekends and then at the age of 16 she enrolled as a full-time student with two scholarships oh my gosh Thinking about context and what was going on, so World War Two began just as she was starting her work here full time. Luckily the director at the time, which was George Dyson, oh my god. He fought to um. keep the college open during these war years. So although war was going on all around her in kind of carried on as normally as possible. So she wasn't evacuated and she stayed in London and kept going into college. So it seems to be this real sanctuary and she writes very affectionately about it. She called it the coal. Yeah. That was her kind of, (laughs) my beloved coal.
0: Oh, Um,
2: Oh, so cute. So during her time there, she studied with Herbert Howells, who apparently she wrote that she had a bit of a love-hate relationship with. Honestly, same. Yes, literally same. We all do. (laughs) And she also had composition lessons with Vaughan Williams and she studied orchestration with Gordon Jacob though in addition to all her composition and stuff she studied acting and mime and in her spare time wow. she loved a bit of watercolour painting and she did lots of doodling in her diaries so she was really pretty artistic through and through. She sounds like you
0: Ellie doing drawing yeah, painting. She does sound a bit like me yeah. actually. You, you just need to, to take up some mime and then you'll be there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you can...
0: can't see me this is a podcast but I did just do the <laughs> mime thing with my hands and <laughs> no one I, can do that. I can see
1: Ellie in a Breton striped shirt and a black
0: Blackberry <laughs> so, would she have been there around the same time as Samuel Coleridge Taylor, Ben?
1: No. No. No, no, she was taught by Vaughan Williams. Vaughan she was, Williams taught, was a of Vaughan Williams student of coleridge Taylors.
0: Of course.
1: Yeah, so Coleridge was early 20s. She
0: was there in the th- yes. 30s.
1: Because uh, yeah. Vaughan Williams died in the 50s, I think, so she would have had him quite late in life, mm, I imagine.
0: Okay, that's me not understanding numbers. No, I've... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so during her final years there, she
2: helped the director of the junior department, Angela Bull, to write, compose and arrange and direct the annual productions put on by the younger students and Madeline also took to the stage herself at every possible opportunity. Somebody has said that they think she would prefer to be remembered as an actress rather than a composer which I thought was really interesting. Um,
0: She must have been a good actress. Yeah
2: I don't know much about her acting but clearly one of my favourite quotes about her is by Wanda Brister who says she seemed to have one foot in the theatre and another in the western art music tradition so she really loved the theatre and that comes yeah. through even in her classical work Yeah, it's
0: very fabric yeah. yeah
2: So one of the important things that happened at the Col was that at the age of 19 she met her future husband Roger Lord in a drama class who was an oboist and they bonded when Roger needed an accompanist and she accompanied him and they fell in love oh. um, They then got engaged in 1945 and married in 1947 in Streatham in London They moved to Birmingham briefly when Roger played oboe in the BBC Midlands light orchestra but then returned to the drink family home in streatham and stayed there for the rest of time <laughs> um, so uh, still there right they're now still uh, having their sunday <laughs> jamming sessions no um
0: they're immortal
2: <laughs> and then a few years after that they had one child jeremy who went on to become an inventor. And their married life was driven a bit by Roger's oboe gigs. So he played in several major orchestras and eventually became principal oboist in the London Symphony Orchestra in 1952. Um, This led him and Madeline to travel on tour with the orchestra to Florida for four summers in a row in the 1960s. So she was a bit of a groupie going on tour with the London Symphony Orchestra. Crowd
0: surfing. Yeah, (laughs) cheering on
2: from the sidelines. I think during these travels, she picked up a lot of influences from different places. So then she led quite a domestic life at home, bringing up her son, Jeremy, fulfilling the domestic duties. It seems like she had quite a similar setup to some of the female composers from the previous... Yeah, Yeah. we
0: touched on before.
2: Um, And then (laughs) she actually died quite young at age fifty-four in nineteen seventy-seven, where apparently she was composing at the piano. I don't know if that part is true, but she she had a brain aneurysm and died very suddenly. And then lovely Roger Lord spent the rest of his life trying to print her music, publish her music and circulate her music. So he's dedicated the rest of his life to getting her music out there because she didn't really do any of that in her lifetime. Only very few works were actually published during her lifetime. So he's very dedicated. I think it might have been quite a challenging process for him because she tended not to date any of her materials or she, she was not good at cataloguing her own works she seems quite Mm. I don't think she was disorganized I think she was just quite defiant and didn't want to conform to Mm. writing the date at the top of every composition and that sort of thing because she thought what's the point yeah especially
0: yeah no that. yeah, anyway.
2: yeah, I think well, she composed for herself, really. The reason she's written so many songs, she composed for her own voice and she composed for her spidery fingers and she composed music <laughs> to play herself and to enjoy herself rather than to make a career out of. One of my yeah, yeah, one of my favorite things about her, that's super interesting is in the last two decades of her life, she became very spiritual and she studied spirituality and parapsychology. I don't really know what parapsychology is, but it sounds quite exciting was quite yeah um so even when she was a child people commented that she appeared to be quite psychic and she believed in reincarnation and the significance of dreams so she went and had her dreams read and uh, talked about the meaning of dreams so it seems her perceptions of time and life and dreams and all this stuff were were very fluid this transfers over into her music so she often describes music as timeless and ageless hence why she didn't date any of her compositions what seems weird is that she has this ambivalence towards the cataloguing of her own works but it's, it's not because she thought time wasn't important it's she has this real philosophical fascination with the relationship between music and time and during mm. just the final three years of her life she gave three speeches at this is a mouthful prepare yourself the London Centre for <laughs> Spiritual and... Pa- oh no I messed it up <laughs> The London Centre for Spiritual and Psychological Studies, or the CSPS. So she
0: she studied there (laughs) and
2: she gave three speeches there about music and the arts and time and these various things. So she had these kind of spooky views about music and time. A little quote from one of the speeches she gave, she said, As well as stirring a deep memory of the past, I think it is possible that the impact of music and mystery also draws towards us like a magnet, some fine threads that are attached to the future, this future being our spiritual goal." So she kind of has this two-way perspective on time about the past and the future, which I think really is reflected in her music, her style, because she no. she's kind of both a pioneer and a traditionalist, in that she relies on the miniature forms and tonal trends of the past but she's also really modern in her fusion of classical and popular genres. Yeah,
0: definitely. So that's kind of a bit of a biography. Okay, yeah, I didn't know much about her. I know mm. quite a lot of her music because I was drawn to her having gone to see a recital of Franny singing Madeline Drink's song cycle, Love and Time, which I just fell in mm. love with instantly. And I went home and had a bit of a research and found a bunch of her other music and I just love it. I love it. Yeah. So that's that's her biography, I guess. Ben, I don't know how much research you've done, but do either of you have any particular favourite works by her?
1: Well, I did. I did a bit of research, and I have to say, I really, really enjoyed the trio for piano, oboe, and flute, which was actually the first thing that came up when I looked her up. I have to ask. Everywhere I look online, every website mentions her affinity <laughs> with with Francis Poulenc, and I've got to ask you because <laughs> obviously you did your dissertation on drink. I did my dissertation on Francis <laughs> Poulenc. This is this is meant to happen, so I need to ask. Like I, I I I mean, I was trying to work out what it is, why this link is made, and how this sort of suggests that she sometimes imitates his style and things. Um, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I mean, you can kind of hear it in that trio. Sort of yeah. I think it's the playfulness that might be what they're. Do you know what I was, about. I was
2: trying to think of? How I would describe her music in one word, and the word I would say is playful. She seems like she's just mm. yeah. tongue in cheek. Even in the beautiful, expressive works, there's always a little glint in the eye there. Yeah, I think it's really interesting yeah. thinking about her, like you said, the affinity with Poulenc and where does she fit in terms of other people? And I know you guys have said in your previous podcasts you feel bad comparing and then comparing
0: and sort of put, yeah
2: putting these. <laughs> composers in competition with better known composers but yeah there's definitely an affinity mm. there i'll i'll say a little bit about that there's basically she's been compared to so many different people this one quote it's a bit of a long one but i'll give it just because it gives a sense how <laughs> wide-ranging her style is so it's from roe hancock child's book and she says madeline's poporri approach to composition is both irresistible and infuriating impossible to pigeonhole she constantly sidesteps musical categorization In her songs, people have heard snippets of Sondheim, bits of Brubeck, fleeting moments of Barber and Poulenc, a touch of the Gershwins, but there is also Strauss and Chopin, Dowland and Bird, and even some medieval organum. The only element she lacks is the atonality of 12-note serialism, a style she found orally incoherent. So she's been compared to all these different composers. Many people agree that her style can be most closely compared to Poulenc. I'd probably agree. I think this comes most strongly in her rhythmic writing and her use of mixed meters. Yeah. And also some of the stark tonal shifts that she uses. In particular, one song from Love and Time, which is called I Feed a Flame, I which love... is quite angry and dramatic. Oh, yeah. That one, I think, is most often quoted as imitative of Fulank. Mm. Yeah. But I kind of love that she, she can't She, be can't, be down, she down. can't simply be compared to a single other male composer and then put in their shadow. So she takes a little bit from no. all these different places and all these different people, but then mixes it all together. And then actually, I think there's something really unique about her style. I mean, if I listen to a piece now, you know that it's her. I mean, obviously, I know that it's her because mm. I know the pieces, but <laughs> there's something yeah. really unique about that.
0: There's mm. something really distinctive about her style with her art songs yeah. and with her song cycles. I mean, you can compare them to the lovely French dramatic Poulanky stuff, but she's so unique. And I really, I really enjoy listening to her stuff. And I'm really picky. I, I don't listen to much music at all, but I do listen to Hooray! some Madeline during here and there. Yeah,
1: It does have a weird sort of timeless quality about it, doesn't it? You can't really... You don't know what ear it's from. You don't actually... You can't really say. And also because of the fact that there's an absence of big works. There's no, yeah. like, huge symphony or something mm. in the catalogue. It's an interesting one in the... It's very hard to pigeonhole her, which I like. I like that you can't put her in a box and go, there. there she sits, because actually she does... Yeah, she do whatever the hell she likes. Yeah. And it does have that kind of timeless. Yeah, it's
2: interesting. Closet. Sometimes oh, I it's, like that. she definitely relies on tonality. Some yeah. people describe her works as diatonic. Her husband said her works are traditional and diatonic, but I think they're not. I think they're this expanded diatonicism where she doesn't just use traditional tonic dominant one four five chords. She often relies on tertiary shifts, so moving by thirds. Um, and also incorporates modal aspects, pentatonic scale, whole tone scales. She kind mm. of just throws in a bit of everything and has these added note harmonies. She used to write about her own style. She called them squishy chords, which oh is my gosh, so, she's me. so cute. Also <laughs> so true. They just sound squishy. They're not offensive,
0: clashy chords. They're just squishy. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. that. I'm kind of on that subject as well with using mm. aspects of all kind of scales and modes. I was really surprised to find out that she was British. I wasn't sure if she was French-British or maybe American-French yeah. or just American. But I just thought that this is just going to sound really bad. I couldn't imagine her being kind of a stuffy <laughs> British 20th century woman. It just, she didn't seem to fit in that box Definitely. for me. But yeah, I think, I, I think I she I has these just...
2: influences from, so from her trips to America when she was a groupie for the London Symphony Orchestra. And I think her dad was a, a quarter French. So that potentially fed some French influences down into her works. But yeah, she definitely just takes a little bit of what she likes from all over the place.
0: Yeah, I like that. Fanny. what are your favourite uh, pieces? I'm assuming Love and Time is going to be one of them. Yeah, it's so what you that's did probably your my favourite to the listeners. If you've
2: heard of Madeline Dring, the most common or most famous song cycles are the Five Betjeman Songs and the Shakespeare Songs. They're probably mm. the most well-known ones. But my favourites are Love and Time and another set called Four Night Songs, which were both composed towards the end of her life so during her spiritual period love and time was composed Mm. in the 1970s it's her only real song cycle in that it includes recurring musical material in in the form of this piano theme that is gradually developed and transformed over the four movements and it sets four texts by three different male 17th century poets so she's gathered these old texts And she constructs her own narrative by putting them together, which tells the story of a woman journeying through the ups and downs of love. What I focused on in my dissertation is it's been compared to Schumann's Frauen, Lieber und Leben, or said that it's a modern version of that because it traces this journey of a woman's life and love. But it's also very different in its modern take on that. And the Four Night Mm. Songs, this was the last work that Drink composed before her death. So it sets four poems by her close friend, Michael Armstrong. And the theme of the cycle is this spiritual and physical fulfilment through love. But actually, the final song, which is called Separation, which is so haunting and beautiful and moving, she died halfway through composing it. So it had to be finished off by wow. her husband roger which given the title of the song is separation it's quite haunting. haunting and then you think did she yeah. compose that did she God. know because she was a psychic so roger's actually finished that song for her which i find quite emotional when i'm singing it yeah i love that some-
1: do we know how long no, after i don't know actually finished
2: it i mean i can't i can't imagine he rattled it off straight away probably
1: <laughs> yeah i got love don't worry i'll get it finished don't worry <laughs> think this will be a work of butter moment. No, that must have been quite an emotional thing for him to go through, having gone through all the grief of losing his wife. And, and so especially losing his yeah. wife
2: as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'd say one more song that I love. Well, it's interesting, we've got these art songs. But then she also composed loads of cabaret songs. So like you said, she's got one foot in the theatre and one in the art music tradition. Mm. So the cabaret songs really reflect her playful side even more. And they're pretty traditionally bluesy, jazzy, have this classic stride piano accompaniment and raunchy vocal slides and, you know, everything. If anything, they're kind of more diatonic Mm. than her art songs, less exploratory because they're conforming to this cabaret yeah, they're, they're um, more way. My favourite one is probably "Can't You Come in Softly, Mr. Brown," which is just hilarious. Um, a lot of they're so they're so humorous and fun. I would say if anybody is interested in listening to her music but doesn't really know where to start, maybe listen to the cabaret songs because they're kind of an easier entry into her music. And there's some wonderful recordings by mm-hmm. Wanda Brister, who's done a lot of research on her and also performed and recorded her music on Spotify. So check those out. I would say it's interesting. We, we we're kind of saying. She stuck to these miniature forms, which is partly, I think, because she was composing mm. for herself and for her own voice and her own capabilities. Did she ever Ooh, compose know, for her actually. mother? Maybe she. I, I that was my yeah, first I thought when you I, said she I was don't a know about that. I don't know, um, but maybe maybe some of the songs she wrote for her mother rather than herself. Yeah, she composed a lot for her husband, so for Roger on the oboe. So she's with her trios and her, some solo works for oboe and piano. She, she composed a lot for her husband, but yeah, there aren't Mm. really many larger scale works. She wrote an opera called cupboard love and a couple of other larger works, but I've never heard them because nobody's recorded them. And I don't think there are scores available or or published or anything. So I don't really know about her larger works, Mm. which is a shame.
1: I think, yeah, I think love think so. Like recently discovered, or so something maybe. About.
2: Hopefully, hopefully, yeah, eventually, these larger works
0: might come out of the woodwork and be more accessible. I mean, Florence Price's stuff was only found yeah, exactly. a couple of years ago in an attic. <laughs> like it happens with yeah more obscure composers. Yeah. So speaking of the discovery kind of thing why are we thinking that she wasn't more famous than she is I suppose it kind of had something to do with the fact that maybe I she didn't know,
2: want to I be. don't know if she wanted to be she I, I think
0: maybe she wanted to be an actress and she did do a few things on on television
2: but I yeah I think it, I think it's the fact that she composed in these miniature forms so she didn't attempt symphonies and concertos and everything I think the fact that she didn't publish any of her works in her lifetime really apart from a handful potentially the fact that she Mm. was not the most healthy person so had this ill health and relatively early
0: death but yeah I'm not Mm. really sure I was just gonna say I wonder if her her lovely husband he seems so sweet I like the sound of him if he hadn't have pushed for it so much then she probably just totally would have gone completely undiscovered until maybe someone found it in the attic a hundred years into the future
2: about a year and a half ago because one of my friends said oh I heard this song the other day I think you might really like it you should listen to it so I listened to it and then became obsessed immediately but then I think gosh if that one friend hadn't mentioned that one thing I never would have heard of her and
0: yeah if I had she's not on any of the lists of of
2: you know important female composers to listen to she's not on any of those lists she's not really I don't know why though
1: Maybe is it because the time in which she was writing, because she's not on the wave of minimalism or mm. avant-garde music, which was the, the stuff that was happening in the educational establishments in that sort of second half of the 20th century. I don't know, maybe that combined with her almost forced absence from like public life in terms of her music means that... It's weird, isn't it, that she's not even no. on the female composers' lists, which have people like Florence Price and, and all that.
0: Well, to completely plug one of my friends... Jim Bate, also currently at Oxford, he has compiled a list of every female composer dating back to before the 1600s. And he has made this database for female composers with a little biography about them and whether you can get their music anywhere. And the website is called The Big List and it's on Donna. Is in D-O-N-N-E. I will link that as well, because that, that's really useful for podcast listeners. I'm sure they'll love it. But she does appear on there, but that is brand new. That is a brand shiny new list, kind of the last two months. I think you released that. I don't know, maybe she'll... I think she's... She'll she's, come to fruition um, soon. One of her songs... Uh, sorry to interrupt you. Um, One
2: of her songs, which is the Song of the nightclub Proprietress, is on the ABRSM s- singing syllabus now. I, I think it is. Which you know Isn't that's it? the sort of thing which actually gets people knowing knowing composers it, because that, if boost it. kids are learning the music then yeah absolutely
0: th- that's great I think yeah that will really yeah. really bring her to the forefront I don't know there are there are so many organizations trying to do similar things to us a couple of them I think we're going to have Ooh. a kind of collaboration with over the next few weeks and I know I think they're all trying to do the same thing as us and bring these female composers who just aren't as well known right to the forefront but for now yeah. go and just listen to her work I love it it's, re- it's readily available on Spotify and Apple Music as well I'm sure but yeah so Ben Swipe, swipe Please, left or right. Swipe I don't, right. don't think
1: I oh, wait, left, Which is the right way? <laughs> the right way. The good, good way is, is right, yes. apparently. I mean, these are, this is the thing. I mean, neither Ellie or I really know, because neither no, of us No, I haven't got a clue either. <laughs> We've done it. <laughs> or, no. So <laughs> I'm swiping right. I, I like it. I think it's great music. I, I like, mm. like music. And and I don't mean that in a condescending way. I do really like, like music like this. And I, I like the smaller forms. I think, I think sometimes it's nice to... To to perform and listen to music that exists in a more compact form rather than sprawling out unnecessarily. Yes. You know. You know, like it's like when you cook. Like you could spend like nine hours making that lasagna or whatever, (laughs) or you could go to McDonald's, a steak sandwich in five minutes. Like you've got like they're both equally delicious, but they they take different amounts of time. So I I think I, I you know. Um, i would swipe right personally
0: it, yes absolutely same it's it's much more my thing i'm not the kind of person no. who can ever sit down and listen to a symphony because i'm such a sporadic person i just don't have the stability to listen to anything for that long but i love during i love her songs in particular i'm not gonna plug it because i don't think she wants me to but somewhere in the world there is a fab recording of <laughs> franny singing love and time um <laughs> I, I will not tell where or when and I love it. I think it's brilliant. Yes, please and I go and listen to her.
2: I'll say one more thing, which is what you're saying you love the miniature Absolutely. forms. I think the thing about Dring is she's deceptive in that you kind of listen to the music and you think, Oh, that sounds quite simple. And then actually you look at the score and it's it's just it's a lot more complicated than it sounds. So she kind of is yeah. even it's chaos. Though she's using these yeah. miniature forms. It's tricky stuff. <laughs> which is great yeah
1: i think it's almost harder harder yeah. to pull off isn't it to be able to do that in a smaller form as well so right? yes i'm
2: also swiping swiping right
0: sorry i just had to have some woo firm swipe right so i think we're going to add her to our <laughs> our brand new canon because we are the new gatekeepers we're as bad as everyone else um yeah but yeah great thank you so oh, much Franny, for coming and chatting just- with us it's been so nice to one well it's kind of our half term <laughs> isn't it Ben so we haven't had to do much work for this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> um it's been so lovely to have someone who's so knowledgeable about a composer and we're not having to worry about fact checking because y- you are the fact checker you've got it. <laughs> um, so thank you so much Franny for coming on the podcast and chatting to us. It's just so lovely to have someone who knows what they're talking about as opposed to Ben and I who just not make it up on the spot but you know, we're, we're, not, we're not quite Whoa, thank you so much for having me, it seems.
2: to <laughs> not really, no. chat about one of my favourite ladies with one of my other favourite ladies and Ben.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, stop.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were referring to me then, to be fair, yeah. but uh, mine, we'll I will that. I
0: thought you were going to say one of my favourite ladies and Ellie, but. um <laughs> No, thank you so much. And Franny, we hope you'll be listening next week. But as for the listeners, I think it's safe to say thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.
1: We will see you next week on St David's Day, which (gasps) might give you a clue as to who we might be talking about. Yeah. So stay tuned for that.
0: Exactly. We'll we'll have some Welsh inspired podcasting. We will. So, thanks for listening, guys.
1: Take care. Oh, yeah. We out. out. Take care. Take care. The end of that podcast. Oh, okay. That okay. Really? One
0: sec. One sec. One sec. <laughs> one sec. One sec. Bye. 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 <laughs>
1: there we go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>